This is chapter 150 of the WCBS Author Talks podcast. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS 880 Books. I'm Lisa Cherkovich. This week, we feature a summer read about a romance writer who no longer believes in love. Then we meet an extraordinary Chinese-American woman who achieved her American dream despite the discrimination that almost tore her family apart. Show of hands if you've ever judged a book by its cover or decided not to pick up a book because it was romance or young adult or literary fiction. Just insert a genre you think you don't like to read in here. Well, author Emily Henry had some fun poking fun at genre snobbery in this week's Summer Read Pick. She tells us all about the tongue-in-cheek titled Beach Read. Beach Read is the story of January Andrews, who is a romance novelist. Um, And she has recently lost her father um, and learned some kind of damning revelations about his life secrets that he kept, secrets about his marriage with to her mother. And it's kind of wreaked havoc on her ability to write. So the book starts a year after all of that happened, and she's been in this huge writing funk. Um, she owes her publisher her next book. She's running out of money. She and her boyfriend broke up, so she doesn't really have anywhere to live. And her last chance, really, is to move into the secret beach house that her father owned with his mistress that she found out about after his death. So she goes there to clean out the house, sell it, work on another book, um, try and find inspiration for how she can write romance when she no longer really believes in love. And lo and behold, her next door neighbor turns out to be Augustus Everett, who was her college rival, who's kind of gone on to have the uh, flashy literary wonderkind career um, that is that seems in direct opposition to her own career. So they kind of strike up a tentative friendship and make a bet that they can write in each other's genres. And it's kind of a contest to see who can sell their book first. So she'll be writing literary fiction. He'll be trying to write something with a happily ever after. And to do that, they're going to take each other on weekly field trips, research trips to kind of show each other how they um, usually work and what their process is like. Now, because I've read to the end of the book, I know that there's another answer that you like to give when you're asked, yes. what is Beach Read about? So tell us, what's the second answer? Yeah, so the second answer, the one I usually reserve for writers or um, just creators of any kind, is that it's about writer's block. I wrote the book when I was really struggling with my own writer's block. I had the kind of motivation and inspiration for a beachy romance story. I really wanted to be either reading or writing that book, but I had no real ideas whatsoever regarding character or premise. And I was just sort of lying on the floor groaning as I want to do whenever I don't have anything to work on. And I was just so eager to work and had nothing, nothing going on in my brain whatsoever. So I decided I would just write about writer's block. Um, That's why the book has a very meta feel. I basically decided I would just start with a writer who had writer's block and go from there. I'd stick her in this setting, this atmosphere I was excited about, and just see what happened with the story naturally. And it was actually really, really helpful to my own writer's block as well, because the whole process of kind of inventing the story was asking questions about what could cause her writer's block. So she became a romance novelist because it seems like a really natural, um, easy question to answer. Like, what would make writing something very, very hard? And one of the things that I think would make writing the hardest is if you've had this big shift in perspective and it no longer really lines up with what you've cared about writing in the past. So 
writing romance obviously would become a lot more complicated if you're not sure you really believe in happy endings or true love or anything like that anymore. So that was kind of the starting point. And then from there, I just looked for all of the pressure points that she could be faced with. So having a next door neighbor who had had this illustrious career that was taken more seriously and given more respect than her own career would definitely be something triggering and make it maybe harder for her to work. Um, being faced with her father's secrets, um, kind of the, the necessity of having to write too, because that's something I don't think I really realized until writing became my full-time job is that there's this new pressure put on it when it's your means of income. It can't just be right when you feel inspired or um, write what you're excited about. Sometimes somebody's waiting for something from you or sometimes you just are simply running out of money and you need to be able to pay your bills. So that can be a real pressure cooker too. And so putting her in that situation where it wasn't just like, I'll write when something comes to me. It was like, I have to be writing right now. What can I possibly work on? Um, and it was just, it was a really like oddly healing experience for me to just let writer's block be something that I spent that much time thinking about and giving weight to and realizing that sometimes, you know, sometimes you really are just dried up and out of ideas, but sometimes I think that there are questions you need to answer before you can push forward in your life, whether it's creative, creatively, or just, you know, in relationships or whatever, whatever, just questions that you have to give thought to and investigate a little bit. So are you also responsible for the very meta title that you have a beach read that's called beach read? Yes, I actually, this is my fifth book, my first adult novel, the the rest of my novels were uh, for teenagers. But this is the first one I've ever written that has gotten to keep its own title from the very beginning. Before I even started the book, I just saved the document as Beach Read. I think I maybe even saved a blank document as Beach Read before I knew I was going to write about writer's block just because that was what I wanted to be working on was a really perfect Beach Read. Um, But then once it became about writer's block, it just made so much sense to me that, of course, this is like her journey to write this perfect Beach Read, which obviously doesn't turn out quite how she expected, given that she's not really capable of writing the book she set out to write at that time. The beach read genre, romance, by extension, women's fiction, these are genres that a lot of people, men mostly, turn their noses up at. Why do you think that is? Yeah, well, I think that there are a couple of different pieces to that. I think that the idea of women's fiction, obviously, I think it's hard for men. They just they see that title and think, well, that's not for me. And in a way, they're right. I mean, women's fiction is generally just books written about women by women, Um, It wasn't written with them in mind. That doesn't mean that they shouldn't be capable of reading it. I read lots of books about men by men, and it's, you know, not an issue for me. But I think that title, it does both a service and disservice to itself, because I will admit that when I am looking for a certain kind of read, or just in general, honestly, when I go into a bookstore, I, I go right to the women's fiction section. I know that there are books there that I will connect with, that I will relate to. I know that it's a certain type of story that um, it matters to me and is very important to me. So on the one hand, it's a great thing because I can find the books that I want pretty easily. But on the other, I think it holds back a lot of readers who are being told, like, this this story doesn't matter for you, which isn't really the case. Like I said, I mean, women read, women and girls, you know, in school you read about boys and men growing up your whole life. And so you don't really have that blockade there where you think this isn't for me. Um, even if it wasn't written for, for you in mind, you just read what you're given, you read what's in front of you and you don't question 
whether the character like looks like you or thinks like you. So I think that's part of it is just simply the title making men feel like maybe this isn't for me. Maybe I shouldn't be reading this. I shouldn't like this. But I think the other thing, as far as romance, like you were saying, um, I think I think stories that focus on love and relationships have typically been told more or or maybe just highlighted more when they're told by women. Um, if you think about just any other kind of art, there's been this progression from like early history, you know, um, where men are telling like the big epics or painting the battle scenes or whatever, the stuff that is like considered men's domain. Um, and women's art has tended to be more domestic only because that was how roles were divided up. Um, I think we're just taught to think a lot more about our relationships and to evaluate them and to think about our emotions. So I think that for some men, it can feel sort of uncomfortable or like something that they haven't been told to place quite as much value on. So reading a book about love, it, it can seem silly and superfluous, which is very funny because for so many people of any gender, whatever, um, love is one of the most important things like in your life. And I think most most people would even say that. But I think still there's a big uh, stigma to caring about love stories or wanting to read about love stories, which I find very silly because what is more compelling than love in its many forms? You know, part of me wonders, too, if if maybe that whole idea of happily ever after kind of scares mm-hmm. them away, too, because they, they yeah. don't necessarily believe in that. And, you know, that applies to men and women who don't necessarily yeah. believe in that ending is possible. Yeah. And that's definitely a conversation that the characters have in Beach Read. That's that's really um, Ever- Gus Everett's main issue with the genre is the idea that you're just guaranteed this happily ever after. And he just finds that almost irresponsible, honestly, like that's not, that's not how the world is. And, you know, a lot of the book is the two main characters having this conversation in a thousand different ways, trying to figure out like, is that how the world is? Like, is it okay to tell those stories? Is there something wrong with those stories? And I think part of the the success of Beach Read right now, honestly, is the fact that we're in the middle of a global pandemic and people are reaching for something that will make them feel safe and good. And that's how I became a romance reader. I was very, very anxious. I was having a health crisis. Um, The world just seemed very dark and bleak and gloomy. And everything I picked up just felt like too much. And it felt so unsafe. And I would hit a certain point where I would just feel like I can't handle this right now. Um, And then I like picked up a romance novel. And just knowing that even though things were going to go wrong in the book, everything was going to, to work out on some level at the end was such a great comfort and allowed me to read things that otherwise probably would have been more upsetting. You know, in romance novels, there's still characters sometimes still die, like things go wrong. Um, In Beach Read, there's definitely like a lot of grief going on, conversations about grief. But but the the safety net of knowing like you are going to be ultimately cared for in the end of this, we're going to protect you. And I, I can understand if that's not really everybody's cup of tea, but I do think that there are times in life where you just want to read something knowing everything is going to be okay. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think that there is a real sweetness to saying that those stories matter. Um, and I mean, I'm kind of split between whether I'm a pessimist or an optimist, but I do think that's how I, how I prefer to try to see the world as ultimately everything works out in a way. I mean, that's obviously not categorically true, but I think the message of Beach Read is like, if you have love in your life, if you are pursuing health and happiness and joy, um, 
then yeah, things won't go perfectly. You might not get that perfect happy ending, but you'll have a beautiful life. So you have a coffee shop slash bookstore owner in your book. They host a little event and I'm going to borrow a question from Maggie, if I may, because I thought it was the perfect question and one I've never asked before. Where do you imagine this book should be read? Oh, that is, it's so funny that I did not remember that that's what the question was. I think, I mean, definitely reading any book on the beach is just a complete delight. Um, But I think just like sitting, if you have a yard, backyard, side yard, front yard, I think just sitting in a chair in the sun, um, getting nice and hot and sticky and sweaty, I think that that would be the ideal experience, something with ice in it, like you're drinking something with ice in it at the same time. Well, I think that sounds like a perfect idea. Yes. We've been talking with Emily Henry. The new Beach Read book is titled Beach Read. Thank you for spending some time and talking to us today about it. Thanks so much for having me, Lisa. The COVID-19 pandemic has fueled a rash of attacks on people of Asian descent worldwide. Here in the U.S., there have been reports of people being spat on, punched and kicked as some people wrongly look to blame them for the deadly outbreak. Sadly, this kind of racism is not new. In her memoir, From Manchurian Princess to the American Dream, retired college professor Anna Pai recalls what she faced as a young immigrant girl growing up in the States during World War II. She told her story to our Pat Farnack. Your book is truly incredible. It's very engrossing, beautiful photos, very long. But you know what? I I can see why it is that long, because it took that to tell your story in its entirety. Yes, I guess so. It's been a long life, first of all. Yes. (laughs) An eventful one. An eventful one. That's the word I was thinking of. I saw a lot of things happen. I think there were lessons to be learned from it, and I wanted my children to understand what were some of the forces that led us, myself and my husband, to perhaps behave and expect, have expectations that they may have thought were a little bit strange because they were Chinese rather than Americans. Your relationship with your mother, though, I think that mother-daughter relationships are often difficult, challenging. I know with my own mother, I was thinking of you this morning because my mother always said to me, a woman after the age of 40 shouldn't have long hair. And I had hair halfway (laughs) down my back and she never approved. And just recently, I cut my hair. She was not right. (laughs) I do not look good in shorter hair. I would have to say that my relationship was not great with her for a long time. I was able to repair my relationship with my mother. And I was thinking about that when I was reading about you and your mother. Yes. Uh, The difficulty is that because of language, I was never able to express myself to my mother in a way that I knew would appease her, make her feel better. And um, it was on on both our parts. She couldn't conquer the English language, and I could not speak with her with the kind of language that she expected from me because I didn't grow up amongst people, was not exposed to manner in which children should speak to their parents classically. And that was 
something that caused me a lot of discomfort because I thought it was my fault. Well, how about the way that kids speak to their parents now in America? Wow. Oh, my goodness. Oh, yes. <laughs> Even to us who grew up in America, we were astonished by the way that, that Americans, uh, American children spoke to their parents. Well, now that the book is is out, and what an accomplishment, how do you feel? Do you feel like part of your life's work is done now and you can sort of rest a little bit on your laurels and you got it out there? I bet. I bet. Absolutely, but primarily because I have something for my sons to read and their children to read. I didn't want them to forget, and I wouldn't have blamed them for forgetting because they <laughs> were born here and grew up here, and their parents were pretty well Americanized. So there wasn't that much that I could expect them to know or feel about China. And I wanted them to know some of that. And the only way that I could do that was to write write it down. When I was in need of talking to somebody. There was nobody for me to talk to. I would write. I would just write and then eventually um, tear the paper up because I I didn't want my parents to see it. It sort of put me into a habit of writing down things that I felt. That must have been cathartic, though. You got it it out that way. Absolutely. I mean, we never stayed in one place long enough for me to develop friendships where I could talk about personal things to friends. Never had them because we moved about once a year. So writing things down, as you said, was cathartic. And so when I wanted to tell my children, my sons, uh, about what was important to me and why, it ended up being a book that took me about eight years to write. Well, it's worth it because it's a terrific book and the photos are are gorgeous. Well, maybe not the one about the bound foot. I had no idea. Oh, I know. I know. I know. It's just amazing. It never failed to amaze me. You know, the Chinese parents love their children. I know that we're not different from anybody else. But for them to be willing to allow their young daughters to go through the agony of having bones in the foot break as and their feet were not allowed to grow, it just it just always surprises me no end. How in touch are your children with Chinese ways? Their attitude towards Chinese ways very similar to what their friends attitudes might be. But of course, they would be more familiar with them. Like me, as we grew up, and as they grow up, you were able to see some differences between how the Chinese react to things as opposed to how Americans would react to the same things. And you just accept it. Now, you and your husband, you couldn't care less if your kids married Americans, and and they did. No, no, there wasn't. You know, it was an assumption because of our attitudes towards things like that. Um, but one of the most amazing things to, that happened to me along this line, I never said a word that I knew of. <laughs> I never <laughs> intentionally said anything where I would prefer my sons to have dated uh, Chinese girls as opposed to American girls. And yet, when he went to college, my oldest son, in his freshman year, met the woman that he now has been married to for decades. And 
he called me and told me about her. Oh. He did. Yeah. That's incredible. And, uh, yeah. Uh, well, I probably asked him, how are things going on the social front? And it turned out that he had met this classmate that he was attracted to and thought was a wonderful person and was dating and becoming serious with. And I, out of curiosity, asked him, okay, that's fine. Um, is she Chinese or is she American? I don't really care which. And he said, she's American. And in Chinese, he said to me, I'm sorry. <laughs> wow. I mean, that wow. me over. Yeah. It absolutely bowled me over. But so somehow or other, I must have during the course of <laughs> his growing up, given him the idea that I preferred Chinese girls to American girls, which is not at all the truth. I think maybe it's because so many of our friends, we were all Chinese American friends. They were like us. They were not Chinese Chinese. Yeah. I was uncomfortable with Chinese Chinese. <laughs> But our friends were Chinese-Americans, and they were like us. So I'm not quite sure when and how I put the idea into my oldest son. I prefer Chinese <laughs> daughters-in-law. I must say that I have two daughters-in-law that could not have been surpassed by Chinese or women of any other country. You're a lucky woman. I could talk to you for hours, but I do want to touch on you got a Ph.D. in genetics. You had a very successful mm -hmm. career teaching at Montclair State mm -hmm. in New Jersey for 28 years. What drove you? What motivated no. you? No, there was no motivation coming from my parents because I was a daughter. Ah. My brothers got a lot of pressure from my parents because they retained the classical Chinese ideas about the positions of males and females in the Chinese family. So I never had that. But the reasons that I went on were in great part due to my professors when I went to college. I, I didn't know what I was going to major in. I ended up um, majoring in biology because I was interested in nature and so forth. And I went to a small women's college, Sweetbriar College in Virginia, where the professors got to know the students very well and vice versa. And I had a major professor that sort of took me under her wing and pushed me. And that was a program uh, in Bar Harbor, Maine, during the summer that was to teach biology students research. And this was at the Jackson Lab in Bar Harbor, Maine. And that was what lit a fire in me. I didn't think, for one thing, that I was capable of doing research. I sort of grew up, I guess, underestimating myself for most of my life. And I found through this program and my relationship with the scientists at Jackson Lab that, that taught me how to do research and how exciting it was. But the one thing that I can say for myself, but I was willing to try. And when I was given opportunities, I tried my best. Everything fell but into it, place. Everything fell into place. It was one person leading me to another person. I was just very lucky. But you had a nice marriage, too. I had a wonderful marriage. Now, I had been brainwashed by my parents to not date American boys. In those days, in the early 50s, there weren't that many I don't think, eligible young women. The Chinese community yeah, yeah. sort of was pretty well tied in with each other. My parents had only Chinese friends. 
So when I went home on the vacations from Sweetbriar, I would have dates lined up for me. <laughs> Popular young lady. <laughs> <laughs> oh, after the longest vacation was Christmas and, and New Year's, and I would have a date every night. And David's family was well known to my my parents. When David invited me out for the first time, he was going to take me to dinner in New York City. And my mother, knowing his family, said, you know, his family uh, has a Muslim background. So don't order anything at pork. Don't mess this up, Anna. (laughs) I went to dinner with him and I ordered some some vegetable dish. And he orders a pork dish. And I, I sort of mentioned it to him. I said, I didn't think Muslims would eat pork. And he said, well, he laughed and he said, well, I'm in the reform group. <laughs> was it love oh. at first sight? Were you were you smitten with him from that, the first? I, it wasn't love, but it sort of interested me and yeah. found out that he was very Chinese American, even though he had not been in America as long as I had. He didn't come over until he was 16. Okay. But I liked that part of it, too, because he could, uh, when we would be in a conversation with people, if they said something in Chinese that I didn't understand, he would know I, I didn't understand. Then he would either interpret or explain. Nice. I mean, my mother was absolutely out of her mind with him. And it, it annoyed the heck out of me. <laughs> and I was happy that she didn't uh, annoy me to the point where I, I decided to, not to see, not him. To see yeah. him. Well, you redeemed yourself in her eyes, I guess, without knowing it, right? Oh, yes. Yeah. Absolutely. She was so happy. She was so happy. Anyway. Well, that was that was great talking to you about the book. And, and the book is, is so fascinating. You've had quite a life. And I'm glad that you've shared it with everybody. How are you promoting your book when you're in quarantine? I guess it's it's a little challenging. Well, I just don't. Well, you're talking to I me, just, so that's part of it. Actually, I, I am uh, delinquent when it comes to my book or anything that I've done. I need to be pushed. Oh. Unfortunate life I have been pushed. Well, you have to be pushed some more because you've got to get the word out about this book. It's just terrific. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. And how old are you now, may I ask? You may ask. <laughs> you won't I tell me. believe it. I'm 85 years old. 85. Okay. I can remember 15 years ago going to a new doctor and filling out the forms that everybody has to fill out for a new doctor. And it asked your age. And I wrote <laughs> 70. And I looked at that. No. I can't accept this. When did that happen? <laughs> <laughs> well, you have been delightful. And I'm, I'm so glad you took the time. Be safe. I wish you very great success on the book. I loved it. Thank you so much. Right. Thank you. All right. Have a great Appreciate day. It. You too. Okay. Bye-bye. And that's where we close the book on this chapter. Next week, it's a fresh and diverse take on the world of private school admissions from one of the first black and white author duos. It's also quite a fun read. Until then, find us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS 880 Books. I'm Lisa Chernovich.